Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership into new business. Welcome back to the Thought Leadership Project. I'm Jay Harrington. Tom Nixon is on vacation, so he's not joining us today. Uh, but we are joined by a guest. Bob Boudet is with us today, and Bob is the founder of Boudet Thought Leadership Partners. He's also the author of a relatively recently released book, and it's a great one. It's called Competing on Thought Leadership, How Great B2B Companies Turn Expertise into Revenue. Um, Bob's another person who I met via LinkedIn, so it's cool to have this opportunity to have this chat. So welcome to the show, Bob. Thank you, Jay. Great to be here. Yeah, you as well. And as I was kind of alluding to before this episode, um, you know, we've got I've got the Thought Leadership Project podcast. You've got the competing on thought leadership book. So we should be able to, you know, have our minds meet here and, and talk thoroughly about this topic. Um, you seem like a perfect guest for sure. I, I want to start by just, you know, talking about your book, but um we're gonna dig into a lot of the details and concepts in the book, which I, I definitely recommend. And first off, though, I want to talk about a question I get a lot, and I know different people have different opinions on this, and it's it's somewhat context-dependent and, and, and situation-specific, but the question of, if I'm going to write a book, should I self-publish that book, or should I pursue a traditional publishing deal for it? Do you have some general thoughts on that topic, um, kind of a any frameworks for thinking through for an individual who might be, you know, in this position. In fact, I I had a conversation with someone earlier today who asked me my for my thoughts on this. Um but interested in in your thoughts cuz you you did go the traditional publishing route. You've got this beautiful hardcover book with a nice dust jacket. I'm jealous in the sense that all I have are uh soft cover copies of my books, but tell me your thoughts, Bob, on sure. traditional versus self. Okay, so there's actually um three options for for book publishers for, for mm -hmm. publishing a business book <clears throat> one is the traditional publishers they're the wileys and the penguin portfolios and you know the folks who will give you an advance against royalties and and they may do a little marketing unless you're a famous author then they'll do a lot of marketing so um so it's traditional publishers and then you have on the other side of the um spectrum you have the the uh, self-publishers, right? And so they'll handle the, the graphic design and the, and, and the and the printing of the books, and they won't do any marketing for you, and you'll you'll uh, pay them to do that. But between these two endpoints of traditional and um, and self-publishing is something called hybrid publishers, mm -hmm. hybrid, which is the the route I took with with my book. The hybrid publisher I used called Idea Press. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not here to give an advertisement for them or or, or anybody else. Uh, they also have another imprint that is really a self-publishing imprint. But Idea Press, uh, with their main imprint, Idea Press, they get many more. Um, you're still you're still going to pay them. I paid them. Um, they don't accept most of the authors who come their way. They uh, if they don't like a book, then they'll shuttle that to their uh, self-publishing imprint. But they have published. I was attracted to them because they're they're publishing people like Ram Charan, who's mm -hmm. in the management consulting world, is a big guru, and he's written more than a dozen best-selling business books over the years. 
including uh, a book he co-authored with uh, Larry Bossidy called Execution, Getting Things Done, I don't know how many years ago. So it's the hybrid publishing route. So you're just like a self-publisher, you're going to pay them. Uh, they'll do a little marketing, um, not much. Uh, you're going to have to do your own marketing. But even the traditional publishers, most, and, and we help people, we help mm -hmm. people publish. It's one thing we do as well. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that, that first-time authors especially are surprised at, even if they do get a contract with a John Wiley uh, or, or mm -hmm. a Penguin Portfolio or a Harper Business, they're not going to do that much marketing mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> for the first-time authors. Uh, mm -hmm. And most, and and by the way, most of these publishing houses, um, the chances of getting a, a contract there are are very small, especially if you're a first-time author, and you don't have a you know what they call a platform, a big marketing platform. You don't have mm -hmm. you know thousands of LinkedIn followers. You don't give uh, speeches you know regularly. Uh, you don't have an email newsletter with tens of thousands of subscribers, et cetera, because that platform is their hedge. Traditional book publishers don't don't like to be in the business of losing money. And so, especially on business books. And so uh, the, one of the dirty little secrets of traditional publishing is um, some of them will even say, well, if you buy 10,000 books, then we'll take on your book. And that's, of course, to guarantee they don't lose money on the book. And so you're you're buying it at wholesale price, 15 bucks a book. That's 10,000 books is 150,000 bucks. That guarantees the traditional publisher, they're not gonna lose money on the book. So the, the, the decision I think, and I'm not an expert on this at all, but for me, the decision became, why am I writing this book? It's not to make money from the book itself, although if that happens, um, great. But it's not to make money from the book. It's to it's to because I wanted to publish a book after thirty six years in this doing of doing this work, and because I wanted um, and of course to be a business generator. So we're in a couple of businesses. We consult and we develop content for for large B2B firms, particularly management consulting and IT services firms. And we're in the training business now too, helping, um, we're working with a large consulting firm right now. Um, we've taught a virtual class for the last year and a half uh, to help them and, and their researchers, thought leadership researchers, structure their research findings, the narrative core messages that they're going to come out with after doing some research. So um, so our book was there to, ge to, to generate more of that business. It was not there to make money from the book itself. And um, as uh, you know, the, the, the advantages of self-publishing or hybrid publishing are you'll get your book out to market faster um, and you have more control over the cover and the editing of the book and the inside design. The advantages, of course, of getting a traditional publisher is 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 they're paying, unless they ask you to buy a minimum number of copies. You, you know, they're paying you in advance against royalties. And if your book doesn't sell very well, then they're not going to make a lot of money on your book anyway from royalties. And yeah. so, 
you know, I don't know what that adds up to. Uh, if you have a, um, I think one of the reasons that the Ram Sharans of the world are going to hybrid publishers is because um, they want to get to market faster. They already have a, an audience that'll buy whatever book they write because they have a name and they don't need the imprint of a, a, of a Warner Books or, a, you know, Harper Business to sell books. They just don't. And um, and a lot of books, of course, are sold on Amazon now and barnesandnoble.com and not in bookstores. So, yeah, I think something like 85 percent at, at, or somewhere in that range, if I'm not mistaken, it's, it's pretty crazy. And no, I, I agree with all that. And I yeah, thank you for kind of adding that third category of of hybrid. Um, it's definitely a route. If you want a nice hardcover book, it's a, it's a good way to do it. Uh, you know, the, the public, if you try to go off and self-publish and get a hardcover book, it's a tricky process to, to go through that process of printing for sure. And an expensive one. Um, and yeah, I, I you're, you're, all your points resonate. Yeah. The, I've had friends who've have large platforms who have gotten, uh, publishing deals with, a big traditional publishers and and have hardly sold any books and the and the publisher just gave up on the book after a month it was you know it was clear this book wasn't going to sell where you know i think about my own books um you know really to me it's don't don't worry about the book launch so to speak right you're not trying to get on the you know the new york times bestseller list at least most of us aren't uh just really focus on writing a great book i mean that for my books word of mouth you know the fact that six and four years respectively for my two best uh, you know better selling books um they're still they're selling more now than they did uh you know in the first 12 months and i think that's that's what i'm aiming for certainly when it comes to a book and i think that's how people should think about it like write a great book and that's the first thing and then worry about all this other stuff later uh it's it's important it's not insignificant but it's not the most important aspect so all right cool uh so Bob, as we transition to talk more about you know this this idea of thought leadership, and we're going to be using that term a lot today, I would imagine. Maybe we'll just lay some groundwork here and get on the same page about uh, what that term means. Uh, and just I think people have a general sense of it, but I'm interested to hear uh, you talk about it a little bit. I know in your book you define it, but just maybe put a little bit of uh, detail on this term that sometimes people are confused by. You know, is it a is it a verb? Is it a noun? Like, what is it exactly? Maybe it's a little both, depending on the context. Uh, but what's thought leadership to you? Well, to me, let me just take a, a quick step back to so um, to pre present some context about my definition. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and um, so I've been working largely with professional services firms, from very big ones to very small ones. And within professional services, management consulting firms, IT services firms, architecture and engineering companies, corporate training development. And so these firms are in the business to solve client problems. So my definition of thought leadership uh, it, it is with that in mind. These firms, um, their clients have a problem in, in a law firm. These clients have a problem and they need an outside advisor to help them solve the problem, whether it's they've been sued or they have a supply chain problem and they need a supply chain consultant to untangle it. So my definition of thought leadership with that in mind is thought leadership is the eminence that a firm or an individual uh, gains by uh, bringing to market a and becoming known for a superior solution to a complex problem. 
And so there are a couple of things to unpack there, um, which is why I believe thought leadership does not necessarily equal thought leadership marketing. That's a piece mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. so for for pro professional services firms, when they do primary research-based thought leadership, they study a bunch of companies, a whole bunch of companies, and they look at what the best companies did differently than the worst companies and solving the problem at hand. This is what they find in their research. Uh, that content, those insights, not only becomes content for the marketing, the thought leadership marketing part of thought leadership, you know, content for white papers and research reports and op-ed submissions and conference speeches and webinars and all that, that thought leadership research content should be fueling service development, services enhancement, uh, and then the kind of the whole supply side, what I look at is the supply side of thought leadership. And so if you, you can do a great job in creating a big blockbuster idea through your thought leadership research, and you can market it brilliantly and get all these leads coming in the door. But if the only people who know how to do this work are the two authors on the book or the two authors on a Harvard Business Review article, and you're in a big firm and all these inquiries are coming in, then um, then you can't scale your expertise unless you invest in, in rigorous methodology development and, and extensive training, internal training and development, and in recruiting the right people who are willing to be trained on this new service that you've developed, whether it's a new legal service or an update to an existing legal service uh, or a management consulting service or a new accounting service or whatever. And so what I've seen for 36 years in the management consulting industry and the IT services industry and architecture, and I don't know if it applies to the legal sector, is these companies that are really uh, clued into thought leadership and get excited about it and see how it can generate leads and revenue, they, don't, they have not spent nearly as much time and investment in the supply side of thought leadership, right? Mm -hmm. You know, bringing in methodology, development people to take these great ideas that now need to be scaled up and investing in internal training and development and investing in recruiting to get the right type of people who will want to do this work and have the right backgrounds. So I think we're, so in my de definition of thought leadership, I think we're very early, we're no longer early on in the thought leadership marketing game, we're, we're, we're all there. I mean, your firm is a great example. Mm -hmm. We're all early on, even the management consulting firms, I would argue, we're still early days in, you know, in, in scaling the supply of expertise driven by quote unquote thought leadership in these firms. And yeah. ultimately that's, that is what it means to compete on thought leadership. If you, if you, if your clients, if the world falls in love with your big idea about if you're a big law firm and they fall in love with your big idea based on research about how big companies can can um, counteract class action lawsuits, right? Mm -hmm. And you don't have enough lawyers in your firm who can who can deliver that legal expertise at the quality of the two authors. Mm -hmm. Surely, the only two authors who can do that. You don't really have a scalable service, and so. I think this is kind of the area of thought leadership. And my book only had one chapter on it, and it was the shortest chapter. That I think is really what ultimately is 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 
necessary to to quote unquote compete on thought leadership. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't think we often enough. I know I, I speak for myself. I, I often enough think about that issue, which is kind of extending thought leadership all the way through the you know, service delivery area and, and leveraging you know those ideas. And I mean, to me, that that probably I'm. I, because I'm I'm just thinking out loud here, uh, but I mean I see that now, uh, and it and it makes sense. And I guess I've just maybe never put all the pieces of the puzzle together. But I mean th- these would be things like, um, you know, identifying and naming frameworks, right? For what what are the insight? Okay, you have the insights, and then you develop the framework for the the sort of the delivery model or the methodology. The you know, and there's certain guys who are uh, you know masters at this i mean jim collins come to comes to mind with the flywheel effect and you know you think about that's exactly what jeff bezos used to scale amazon and um or i i know what is it there's boston consulting group has some is it the growth share matrix i don't know if you're familiar with that but they yep. th- this is another example of probably what you're talking about in terms of um and and so there's lots of pieces to that but that that you know it's the ability to not only gain the insight through research but to to name it to brand it to scale it uh across your organization is that's it's not the way that most of us think about it you're right it is it is oftentimes um thought more in terms of the marketing piece of things but not the service delivery piece of things right which is one of the reasons i i tell clients that um Thought leadership, a thought leadership research function. We have one client that has 350 people in a thought leadership research function. Hmm. Thought leadership research. It's a big company, $70 billion company. Um, thought leadership research cannot report into marketing. It needs to report up to the top of the company. And the reason for that is if it reports into marketing, it'll be viewed by whether if it's a law firm, the lawyers, if it's a consulting firm, the consultants, if it's an accounting firm, it's the accountants, or the architecture firm, it's the architects. If it ports into marketing, the perception will be by the people who earn the fees, deliver the, the, the advice, thought leadership research will be looked upon as not marketing fluff, but marketing mm-hmm. content. Okay, They will not be taken seriously as a, this can help us update our existing practices and services. Or and this can help us create whole new services. It will not be looked upon that way. So where that thought leadership research function sits with an organization is very important. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Uh, I think you know, the the legal industry, which is most of our listeners are are lawyers or law firm marketers. Um, I'd say I don't know. I can't. I'm guessing, but eighty to ninety percent. Um, but the legal industry has historically and notoriously been kind of a bit of a follower when it comes to adopting new approaches. Um, and, and who they're following tend to be some of the other uh, adjacent service service firms, uh, management consulting being one of them. Uh, and so I wonder, Bob, since that's been more your area of expertise and experience throughout the years, just talk a little bit about maybe what are who who's doing thought leadership as you're defining it well. I mean, McKinsey comes to mind, but they seem to come to mind for doing everything well. But um, you know, I know you know they they're probably a pretty good pretty good example of all this. But just talk a little bit about maybe some of the differences and primary research maybe being one of them. We can dive a little deeper into that. But in general, I guess give me your impression and maybe do some compare and contrast against what law firms have been doing. 
Well, I don't don't know how much I'll be able to compare and contrast against law firms mm -hmm. because it's really not been our market, and so yeah. I'm largely unaware of what they're doing in in thought leadership research. Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah. well, I, you tell me what you tell me your you 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 uh you give me your description, and then maybe I can do a little bit of compare and contrasting okay. <laughs> based on what you well, say. My perception of and 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 uh, of the revenue of the two firms that I've had since 1998. Um, if you were to say well, what's the total revenue, which is well into probably um, eight figures um, cumulative revenue over over since ninety eight. What percent was from the legal industry? I'd say probably less than one percent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like the Willie Sutton thing. Is why does he? Why does Willie Sutton rob banks? Because you know that's where the money is. No, right. <laughs> you know, we just didn't think the money was. And and my. Business partners, mm -hmm. and I didn't have any legal background. So, um, and that's not, you know, kind of the island we came from. We came from management consulting. Mm -hmm. So, um, the, um, okay, so the, um, so how does, um, the question was, how does, um, yeah, who's setting the standard? You know, who's who's the who who would we be looking to if you were to say, like, these are the, these are maybe even some of the firms or even the, the, segment of professional services that's really, you know, the the trendsetter and, and doing this really well? Well, I would say uh, consulting firms like McKinsey and Bain and & Company and Boston mm -hmm. Consulting Group mm -hmm. and Accenture uh, in the IT services world. Um, some of the Indian companies are doing pretty well. Tata Consultancy Services mm -hmm. is a client of ours. Um, they get thought leadership. The um, In the in the world of research companies, corporate executive board, which was purchased by Gartner, um, mm -hmm. I don't know, six years ago, seven years ago, something like that. Corporate executive board, which I don't know if you looked into the history of corporate executive board and its sister company called the advisory board. Mm -hmm. They were both public companies that were about a billion dollars in revenue with very healthy profit margins. Uh, started by the guy who owns the Atlantic Monthly, David Bradley, many years ago, and the corporate executive board sold to Gartner for two, $2 billion, $3 billion, whatever it is, a couple of years ago. But the kind of thought leadership research the corporate executive board did led to a number of big management ideas, one of which is the challenger sale, which is hmm. a, a B2B sales method. Yep. Um, in the management consulting world, uh, companies like Simon Kutcher, mid-sized firm, Simon Kutcher and Partners, a German-based but global firm, a 500 million in revenue, privately held firm. They've done a lot over the years in publishing books. Um, and we help them with, with one of their books. They are the category killer in pricing strategy, big companies. Mm -hmm. And they've their founder was an academic. One of their co-founders was an academic, uh, Herman Simon. He's still publishing books. <laughs> he's mm. he's kind of retired from the business, but he's still publishing books. And those books um, help the company get on the map and be known for, we are the deep experts in pricing strategy. Mm. And, yeah. um, you know, I, 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 in the legal industry, you probably would know this better than I would, Jay. Is there a the equivalent in the legal industry to a blockbuster business book by a consulting firm? Is is mm -hmm. is there a big book 
pub, uh, published by somebody in the legal industry, equivalent to a Jim Collins or a Michael Hammer and Jim Champy re-engineering the corporation or Ram Sharan. Is there the yeah. equivalent in the legal industry? No, I wouldn't say so, Bob. Um, there's uh, th- that that that's not traditionally been, I think, something that we've that's been done in the legal industry uh, as much. Uh, and I, you know, there's probably you could speculate as to why the, the you know why that would be. Um, you know, you see, there's a lot of obviously smart, super creative individuals in in the legal industry um, who are. You know, they're doing this. They're doing this creative thinking. They're creating new frameworks, um, new methodologies for um, transactional work, litigation. You know, you name it. Um, it's happening. Uh, maybe it's a little more. I don't know. There's been a. There's probably. There's probably more a hesitancy towards confidentiality and keeping things close to the vest in the legal industry as a from a cultural standpoint. You know, um, oftentimes. It, you hear lawyers say things like they're afraid to, uh, you know, they don't want to give away the secret sauce uh, and and things of that nature. So from a cultural standpoint, maybe there's some of that. Now I have, I, I know personally, and we've had on this show, um, lawyers who have written books that have been fundamental to, you know, their large practice that they've grown for themselves. Um, a former colleague uh, of mine, John Trenacosta comes to mind, who was a guest on the show who wrote sort of, you know, Back in the day when you could really could say someone wrote the book on something because it was just less content out there. Uh, and and John wrote the book on this very niche issue of UCC contractual issues uh, in the automotive supply chain. And John was a super in-demand litigator uh, in that space. So it, it definitely works. Um, we, we see it happen. But no, you're right. Um, it's not. Uh, it, it doesn't happen as frequently. And there's not as much emphasis on it. In, in the law firm world. Law firm world has been traditionally for, for years, I mean, just even forming industry groups has been a relatively recent phenomenon, right? It's always been a practice group oriented uh, profession, at least for, for many, many, many years. Now we have we see industry groups and other team oriented and solution-based groups. Uh, but, you know, it's just like I said, uh, we, we tend to lag a little bit um, for various reasons, but uh, we we have we've we've not seen one of those frame breaking books in the legal industry at least as far as I'm aware of. And that to me, you know, uh, a lagging industry spells opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really think um, law firms are all that uh, that different than management consulting firms. Other than you don't need a, a degree to be a consultant, but you obviously mm-hmm. do need a degree to be a lawyer, and you need to pass the bar. But I both industries sell advice mm-hmm. right by the project or by the hour they sell advice to help individuals or businesses deal with issues so i i think from a thought leadership standpoint both industries stand to benefit equally from from great content developed and great content marketed and great content scaled from a service delivery standpoint the um I, I, and you would be closer to this. I predict that the uh, legal industry at large is going to discover the thought leadership is the way to compete. As another sector, the venture capital industry, discovered mm-hmm. when Andreessen Horowitz yep. launched in 2009 and showed VCs how they should be marketing their services, which mm-hmm. at the time the average VC had a one-page website, a homepage, and a you know, and a click for more information. 
um, or tombstone ads showing what companies they you know have been sold or 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 went public. Andreessen Horowitz, if you look at their thought leadership content and their thought leadership marketing very closely, and we have, you'll see that um, they have acted much more like a McKinsey mm-hmm. founding than the average Silicon Valley venture capital firm, much different than the average VC has marketed itself. Uh, you know, all the way, going all the way back to Mark Andreessen's now famous Wall Street Journal op-ed in 2011, I think it was, or 12, why software is eating the world. Mm-hmm. And that helped put that venture capital firm, Andreessen Horowitz, on the map of, because at the time, enterprise software companies like Salesforce, um, their stocks were ha- hammered. It didn't look, that sector didn't look like a good investment opportunity. Um but Mark Andreessen and others at Andreessen Horowitz um, did a, things like that to kind of dispute the notion that software companies were a bad place to park your money, investors. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and I, they, they're a great example. I mean, they they definitely are consciously building a almost like a direct-to-consumer media company in a sense, right? I mean, they have the A16Z podcast, uh, Ben Horowitz has his book, that I think it's the hard thing about hard things. Yeah. I mean, they're very thought leadership focused at, at that firm. And and I agree with you. I think whether it be law firms or other professional services firms, I mean, they they have an opportunity to become a publisher in that same sense, you know, a media um, entity of, of, of their own, um, you know, sort of the, the epicenter of, of thought leadership within these narrow niches in which they compete. And there's a lot of value in that. Um, and yeah, I think that will become increasingly common moving forward. But that that requires, you know, that from a leadership standpoint, that that be emphasized and and a real commitment from a staffing standpoint, too, uh, as well. I mean, it's almost like I know a, a six or Andreessen Horowitz, I think now known as A16Z is, um, you know, hiring former journalists to come in and work, you know, I guess not former journalists, journalists. And I think that same commitment of resources is going to be required uh, to compete on thought leadership. But the 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 opportunity is massive um, because earned attention is just so much more valuable and reliable and um, and the return on investment from that uh, so much greater than than anything else you can have in terms of paid attention out in the marketplace. I totally agree. And I think it would be, uh, well, it'd be wrong for me to say the big law firms have done nothing in thought leadership. That That's mm-hmm. where I sit. That's not the case. They Some of them have, you know, pretty big departments of marketing mm-hmm. people and writers who are there to ghostwrite for the lawyers, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and some of the big law firms, uh, maybe even the firm you used to work at, Skadden, you know, Skadden mm-hmm. Arps, you yeah. know, they're doing stuff. They're publishing stuff. I think they're, I think they're two decades, two decades behind the management consulting industry. However, they mm-hmm. they dip their or more than dip their toe, but they kind of, you know, mm-hmm. haven't fully jumped into into the water. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I wanted to to, however, it, 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 to run by you is, I I I think today because of tools like uh, LinkedIn, the ability to to publish content in, in front of a big audience, if you have a lot of followers and and you know how to promote that content and and even field surveys, a lot easier than was possible 35 years ago or six years ago when I got into this business. Is there may be a notion that 
for thought leadership research, well, you have to have a big budget. You have to be the size of Accenture or McKinsey or or Scadden to invest, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars in a study. I don't necessarily think that's the case. I know it's not the case. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, small law firms, even independents, can do their own form of thought leadership research, primary research, for not a lot of money, but probably for a lot of time, time investment, to come up with uh, a, a different view on how to deal with a certain legal problem in the world. And for, I'll give you an example. And, may, and um, obviously, I'll defer to your knowledge on this because you know, mm-hmm. you know the, the, the law firm industry uh, much better than I do. But if I was a divorce lawyer, if I was a new divorce lawyer, coming out of a whatever firm that had a family law practice and I'm hanging up my shingle and I wanted to get an edge. I wanted people to know that I'm a better divorce lawyer than the next, you know, the, the big, the big guy, the bigger guys, the bigger practices. What I would consider doing is, is, um, and, and I believed that how a divorce lawyer, how well he or she pays attention to the emotional issues that a client is going through while the legal process is unfolding, that that's as important, short of providing psychological counseling. But but understanding the emotional ups and downs of the client and kind of recognizing that and helping the client along, if I went into that, if I was a, um, you know, hang, hung up my own shingle as a divorce lawyer, and that's what I believed, um, I would field a survey. Okay, I would field a survey you know, tell people on LinkedIn, I'm looking for people who've gone through a divorce over the last 20 years. And, I, you know, here's a, a link to the survey um, through a, a email newsletter. Somehow get people mm-hmm. to take this survey um, of, you know, the emotional issues of going through a divorce. Um, and then I would talk to a number of people who are willing to talk about that on a, on a, a, you know, anonymous basis. Their name won't be published. And, you know, so that, um, but their experience is, will be published, and 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 they will be heavily disguised. I, you know, this will take a few months. Um, I obviously analyze the results and then issue a report that says, um, you know, the clients who have been happiness, uh, happy, uh, most happy, happiest with their their divorce attorneys. Uh, or those who paid special attention not just to the legal issues, but also to the emotional ups and downs. And they, whatever the results are, they prepared, you know, a number of people say they prepared me for the histrionics of the opposing lawyer and told me not to really dial into that and all that. Okay, so so that's research that a solo lawyer, I believe, can do for not a lot of money, but for a lot of time, big time investment. And then to come out with op-eds from that research or just the research report, send it to, you know, the people who participated in the research. Here's the, here's the study. They might send it to friends of theirs going through a divorce, right? Mm-hmm. Um, publish an op-ed in the local paper. You know, um, one of the secrets of success to going through a bad divorce is to make sure your divorce lawyer is paying attention to these emotional issues, right? So that, you know, uh, you don't drive them crazy. <laughs> they don't drive you crazy. Yeah. <laughs> or the opposing attorney doesn't drive them crazy. Mm-hmm. So I'm just, this is like, a, you know, I've been thinking about this and uh, I've been through one of those. 
Uh, and I've also been through a, a, a partnership divorce. And I had a very good partnership divorce divorce lawyer. I had two. Um, um, and both were very good, especially the, the, the first guy um, in helping me deal with the emotional ups and downs. And so that's why I have passion for this issue. I have a passion, especially for the family divorce issue. So, but I, I don't want to get off track here, but I look at that. This is, to me, a perfect example of how a solo lawyer can begin to make a name for herself or himself through thought leadership research. And then, of course, thought leadership marketing. Yeah, uh, agreed. And it's it, it sounds sort of grandiose to be talking about use these terms like primary research and and all of those kinds of things but it it is there are tools that make it much easier and and much uh, more seamless i mean i a few years back just to kind of mess around i just put together a quick survey monkey um survey same thing you're talking about maybe i had 15 questions wanted to make it super simple surveyed my law firm audience i probably got you know 70 responses from in-house uh, legal marketers. And, you know, I didn't try to play up the results as if it was a thousand re uh, respondents, but I put together a report. We have, luckily we have good graphic designers, made it visual, you know, visualized it. Um, people still link to that, that report, uh, even to this day. I mean, it was on thought leadership and professional services. So LinkedIn and Edelman, of course, stole our thunder a year later when they published their thought yeah. leadership impact study. Yeah. But nonetheless, um, I mean, I probably spent, you know, we probably spent as an organization 25 or 30 hours and um, it was good bang for the buck and it was good experience. And, and even if it's not, you know, sort of that just data, I don't know, let's just simplify this. Even if, even if you are not publishing the research, Search, getting oriented towards asking questions of your clients, understanding um, you know what they're looking for, spotting patterns, uh, commonalities, connecting dots. That that will inform not only your service delivery but your thought leadership as well, right? Because we want to make sure that we're answering questions and 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 proposing solutions that are actually relevant to our audience. So even if you're not doing formal research you should be doing informal research with your clients yeah. that can then inform you know all that's kinds right. of different things you're doing i mean would you yeah. agree bob oh absolutely and now that you should uh, one, uh another client a longtime client um people should look at very closely he's got a small law uh, a small consulting firm his, his name is robert share s-h-e-r his company is called mastering midsize hmm. so rob is in the in the uh, san francisco bay area and he's been consulting to mid-sized companies, typically between 10 million in revenue and 300 million, usually private companies, often family um, run. Um, that's his his market. He's been doing this thought leadership research on various aspects of running a mid-sized company mm -hmm. for at least 10 years. He uses that some of that research has led to client work, you know, where Says I'm as one of his people say, Rob's doing research on this issue, how companies prepare themselves to be sold, mid-size guy. So so Rob's been doing this research. Um, and in addition to sometime leading to client work, that research um has fed his books. He published a book called Mighty Mid-Size Companies, um, uh, back in uh, when was it 2005? That's generated a lot of consulting work, still generates consulting work for him over time. He's got a Forbes.com 
column. So the, 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 the interviews he does with companies for, you know, thought leadership research purposes, mm -hmm. some of those companies wind up in this Forbes.com column. He, he has published extensively in Harvard Business Review over the years. And so this, you know, doing thought leadership research has helped grow his business pretty considerably. Yeah. In the yeah. Last and then, yeah, I think that probably I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, most professional services firms, they have, you know, they the ability to clean up and and organize and analyze data that already exists is probably an, an opportunity as well. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, there's you, you could put together research reports just based on you know the work you've done over the last decade for X industry and without even actually going out to market and probably gathering new data. Um, you know, another person who came to mind, Bob, and I don't know if you familiar with him, um, David C. Baker. I don't know if that name rings a bell. Yeah. yeah, sure. So he's he's another good example of someone who, and and for those, um, we, we actually interviewed David on, on the podcast. Uh, we'll link it up in the show notes. But uh, he's, he's another example of someone who's done work uh, in the creative fields and over, you know, the course of decades has gathered that data and put it together in, and bundled it with a service offering where he's He's got benchmarks about like where you should be relative to your competitors, and are you a you know tier one agency, tier two, tier three, based on like your realization rate per employee, and he's got all these metrics, and it's really you know he's got a data based consulting practice, and I think and at that he's written several books, and it's just another good example of essentially a solo consultant yeah. who is you know it really allows you to punch well above your weight, so to speak, um, when you're able to put this sort of thought leadership out into the marketplace. He's a great example. And I don't know David uh, personally, mm -hmm. but I read his stuff and mm -hmm. you know, he obviously extremely thoughtful and a terrific writer. Yes. Who has got a niche, right? In marketing agencies, mm -hmm. right? How to run them, how to sell yeah. them, et cetera. And uh, perfect example of somebody who is a company of one is, I understand it, and it's kind of a category killer or one of the category killers in that, in that, I mean, there yeah. are others, but he's mm -hmm. done a, he's done a terrific job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It sounds like we're, we're drilling down on a, on a new idea here to talk more about or explore, which is interesting, which is sort of the, yeah, the, the, the small, but mighty thought leaders who, you know, see if you knew they were operating solo, you'd never believe it just because they seem to be so omnipresent within niche markets. And, um, that's because their ideas are so, um, are so uh, just ever present among in top of mind for people. So it's a good you know, way to think Jim, about Jim it. Collins is a good Jim Collins, yeah. you know, good to great mm -hmm. built to last, et cetera. Another yeah. good example, although he has a research team, mm -hmm. um, around him, um, I don't know how many people he is working for him, but 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 it's a small firm, you know, focused on this research and the books. I think Jim comes out with books every five years or so, and that's because his research uh, process is thorough and, and takes that much time before the next book is is based on the research is going to be ready. And yeah. So um, you know it, what Jim Collins has been able to do is just over the years is just phenomenal. You know, he's, he's yeah. not into McKinsey, right? He doesn't have the yeah. resources of McKinsey, mm -hmm. but yeah. you don't need to ha have the resources of McKinsey to have an impact in, in thought leadership. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think one thing for people to keep in mind is one thing that enables this is just that um, consistent focus on a particular domain. It's hard to do this type of 
deep thought leadership if you're you know more of a generalist who's trying to bounce from practice to practice industry to industry um so you know yeah there some people indulge in variety like to indulge in variety but it makes it a little bit harder to create this standout thought leadership if you're doing that it's one of the benefits of having a, a real clear niche i think exactly and so you know i imagine in 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 you know in legal circles some of the the big niches of the present and future that'll take the require these category killers like deep deep experts deep legal mm-hmm. experts are things like generative artificial intelligence mm-hmm. it may just be artificial intelligence is too wide a spectrum for an individual lawyer to really master you know what are the legal issues yeah. or artificial intelligence broadly speaking it 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 may it may require no 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 i'm an ex, i'm a legal expert on generative ai Mm-hmm. And you know, images and words are kind of being spit out by a, some software. I know the legal issues, you know, uh, around yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Even if even further, um, for you know the the generative AI that produces images, not not necessarily text based generative da- AI. You know, I mean, it's you really can go deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole, and and you have to 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 especially in today's world. So, well, Bob, that might be a good place to wrap up. Um, I uh, think hopefully we gave people some food for thought and maybe inspire some would-be thought leaders to get out there and and start trying some of these concepts we've been talking about. Um, but Bob, before we let you go, uh, can you just point us in the right direction if people are interested in learning more about you, uh, your book, uh, and you know, obviously we'll link up your LinkedIn profile in our show notes so people can connect, connect with you there, but uh, just direct people where to go if you could. Sure. So the place to know more about me and my firm is the website uh, Boudet, B-U-D-A-Y-T-L-P, for Thought Leadership Partners, BoudetTLP.com. Uh, the book's on Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com. And, uh, but we also talk about the book on our website. And, and by the way, we have a podcast. We have a year-old podcast that's called Everything Thought Leadership. And um, so we are on our 16th episode. And Jay, I'm going to invite you uh, in one of our future episodes, because um, we we like to talk to other people, you know, in this uh, in, in in this world of thought leadership. So, yeah, well, we're a, we're a relatively small club in the sort of the consultant space, I think. Uh, so, no, I would love that. I'll I'll commit to that now. If you extend the invite, I'm I'm all in. So, thank right, you for good. that, Bob. All right, yeah, extended. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, it was a pleasure having this chat with you, Bob, and uh, you know, best of luck. Uh, great job and and congratulations on the book and hope we can do this again sometime um even beyond, you know, the the talk we'll have on your podcast. So, so thank you again for joining us and to our listeners, uh we'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, uh, have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Thought Leadership Project. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit thethoughtleadershipproject.com.